Good morning, everyone. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verse 37. 6, verse 37. While you're turning there, I, uh, in high school, had developed somewhat of a naughty habit that I am not condoning nor recommending to our high school students, but somewhere along the way, I realized that I could manufacture a cough and that would give me the luxury of staying home from school for the day. And you know what you're going to do with that time, right? When you can stay home from school, of course, you're going to put on the television and wash your brain with Jerry Springer and Maury Povich. Now, before you have thoughts about me over this, we are going to talk about do not judge this morning. So be careful, and you also have no doubt in your brain that your pastor is a sinner just like everyone else now. Now, Jerry and Maury discipled many young minds. Uh, We would watch the show and be left in shock and awe over the moral depravity that was uh, brought forward. People talking about how they had these elaborate cheating plots on the person they're dating. And we, we also had people who were running DNA tests, had no idea whose child was belonging to which parent. Now, whenever someone would venture to assign any form of moral judgment upon the actions of any of these individuals, there would typically be a mic drop moment. They would say, don't judge me. You don't know where I've been. You've never walked a mile in my shoes. You don't know me personally, or some iteration of that statement. And of course, everyone in the room would just be like, "Uh, okay, I guess we can't say anything about this anymore. And I would sit there as I'm watching the show in high school and saying, mm-hmm, we don't know where you've been. I guess you guys didn't get that one, but that's fine. (laughs) It's okay, we can laugh in church too. It's appropriate. Now this morning... We're going to be looking at the most misapplied thing that Jesus has ever said. Do not judge. And we're going to look at that theology of Jerry Springer and Maury Povich and ask the question, is that in line with what the Bible is presenting here? Let's begin with the idea of what the Bible is not talking. What is judging not in the passage? Well, let me read the passage to you. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, As I look at this verse and I look at the modern context, I think there are two factors that are greatly influencing the way that we look at this passage. The the first factor is religion is private in our minds. The second factor is moral relativism, which is the idea that no one has the right to tell anyone else what is right or wrong. So everyone must determine what's right for themselves. Everyone has a right to privately believe what they believe, but that should never infringe upon another person's right. And thus, even if a, pass, uh, a person doesn't know any passage in all the Bible, they know this verse. Do not judge. Because it provides a handy way of saying, well, you can't tell me 
and I'm wrong. But the problem is, is that Jesus didn't share either of these cultural values. He didn't practice religion in private, and he didn't endorse us to do that. Uh, When Jesus said something like, let your light so shine before others, in that metaphor, Jesus is essentially saying that any form of religion that is not observed by others, either in walk, in talk, is essentially worthless. But he also made moral judgments, didn't he? In John 8, 11, he says to the woman who's caught in adultery, go forth and sin no more. Now, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to pick up stones and, and stone this woman to death, and, and Jesus wanted no part of that. But at the same time, he was willing to make a moral assessment of the situation. So here's what this verse is not. Judging is not a suspension of our critical faculties toward morality in general. Meaning we can evaluate whether or not something someone does is right or wrong. We can assign a moral value to something, particularly if the Bible talks about it. And and you really have to think about this cultural value. It's an absurd universe to live in if we say that no one can ever say anything is right or wrong, isn't it? Even someone who puts forward moral relativism actually has an absolute truth, and their absolute truth is moral relativism. You guys hanging with me on this? Okay. Well, let's talk about what it is. What is it? Well, to get insight into this, we go into an Old Testament story. Now, the greatest king in the Old Testament, bar none, is King David. Psalm 78, 72 says that he led the people with integrity of heart. He led them well. But this guy wasn't flawless, was he? So you get into his life, and there's one episode in particular. If you want to read more about this, your homework is to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. And in this story, David leverages his position of power to sleep with one of his soldiers' wives. Now, all of the army is off, and and they're doing what armies do back in this time period. And David, as king, is supposed to be with the army, but instead of being with the army, he's luxuriating back home. He sees this beautiful woman. He calls her to his room. They have a one-night stand. He finds out weeks later that she's pregnant. Her name's Bathsheba. Her husband's name's Uriah. He calls Uriah home on an urgent matter so that he can construct a plot. The plot begins with David's assumption that Uriah will just go home and he'll lie with his wife, he'll go back to the military, he'll come back, there'll be a child, no questions asked. But it turns out that Uriah has a lot of integrity. And so he says to himself, I'm not willing to enjoy things while my brothers in arms are off fighting battles. So what does David do? He hands him the letter that is his own death warrant. Uriah takes that letter, hands it to the general Joab. Joab puts him in the front line. Uriah is killed. David marries Uriah's wife. And so it appears the cover-up is effective. Well, sometime later after the child's born, Nathaniel, a prophet, comes and he tells David this terrible story. 
See, there's a rich man and there's a poor man, and the rich man in Nathaniel's story has flocks and herds, and this was a sign of wealth during this time. The poor man has one lamb. And so this lamb is like a daughter to this poor man, and, and, and Nathaniel knows what buttons to press for David because David is the eighth son of a shepherd. He used to go out at night and and be with the sheep. He understood what kind of relationship could be formed between a person and a sheep. And so Nathaniel continues to tell this story. Well, guess what this rich man did? He went over to the poor man's house. He had a traveler come in, and, and he takes this man's one single lamb, and he slaughters it and serves it on the dinner table. How do you think David reacts? He's enraged. He begins to get forceful with his words. You tell me who this guy is. I'm going to make him pay back fourfold. I, I even have half a mind to take this guy's life. And that's when the prophet looks the king in the eyes and says, you, David, are that man. And I hope you see as you look at that story with David, the double standard that Jesus is getting at here when he talks about do not judge others. This is the type of double standard. Maybe we don't have the power to leverage to do something as elaborate as David does in this story, but this is the type of double standard that I'm guilty of, that you're guilty of. It's the type of double standard that any one of us could offend. If last week's verse that we looked at, uh, love your enemies, was the hardest thing that Jesus ever said, I'm here today to say that this is tied for first with it. Now, there's an attitude that Jesus is describing in this passage. It's called censoriousness. I know that's a big word, right? Censoriousness. Something we don't often throw around. But it perfectly describes what we're talking about here. Censoriousness means to be severely critical of others. It's the kind of approach to people which avoids self-examination and highlights the faults of others. Or you could say it like this, it's the tendency to ignore my faults and to be critical toward other people. So this is not only the most misapplied passage, it's also the most unapplied passage And why is that? Well, think again about David's story. He commits a horrible crime, yet feels justified to condemn a rich man for stealing a sheep. The problem with this attitude is that we have egg all over our face and we don't know it. That's the idea. Uh, Jesus gives us an analogy or a parable to describe this in verse 41 and 42 where someone's walking around with a log hanging out of their eye and they're going up to another person trying to remove a speck out of their eye. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but that's the idea. So, so if that's the case, if I have egg on my face and I don't know it, how do I know if I'm struggling with this? And I think the way to diagnose that is to look at certain tendencies or indications. So let me describe a couple of these indications. The first, you care far more about another person's sin than you care about your own. Now this is the type of behavior that can manifest itself in Bible studies. 
Can you imagine? You're so concerned with this particular person and what they're doing, and, but you never get around to what you're struggling with. And uh, it gets really spiritual when you tie it all up with a bow and you pray for them at the end. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said that one of the first signs of Christian maturity is a frustration with the hypocrisy of the church and a desire to separate from it. But the next sign of growth is recognizing that the same hypocrisy in the church is present in oneself. Another indicator, (laughs) we gossip. This is the sin we love to commit. Uh, Proverbs 18.8 describes why we struggle with this. It says, rumors are dainty morsels that sink deep into one's heart. So to gossip about another person, think about what you have to do to get to that place. You have to dehumanize them. They're no longer made in the image of God in your mind. They're no longer a blood-bought sinner by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, they become an object in that conversation. They're like a blown up beach ball that we're just passing around for our group's enjoyment. Another indicator, you have a list of sins that you love to hate. You see, everybody has a list of sins that they love to hate. And and, and that list is different for different people. Some people think racism is the unforgivable sin. Other people think sexual sin is the unforgivable sin. Some people in our current climate think it's like health concerns that is the unforgivable sin. Like people aren't exercising or they're smoking. What is your list of sins that you love to hate? Another indicator You look for the worst in others, but expect others to look for the best in you. Ken Sands says, another form of judging is assuming facts, speculating on motives, or jumping to conclusions about others. Another one, you leave no room for people to grow beyond their past mistakes. Whoever they were 20 years ago is immortalized in your mind just like the mammoth that the scientists discovered in that block of ice, just like the dinosaur fossils that's imprinted in the rock. Finally, you refuse to receive any criticism from others because, again, judgmental attitude is the tendency to ignore my faults and to be hypercritical of others. So church is getting a little quiet right now, which means, leads me to ask the question, how does this hit home? How does this hit home, dad, with your children? How does this hit home, wife, with your husband, boss, with your employees, pastor, <laughs> with your church, church, with your elders? You see, this is the hardest thing that Jesus ever said, just like love your enemies. And and we have to be careful of this because likely every single person in this room has someone that they have formed this type of attitude toward in their life. And that's why we need to listen to Jesus' words in verse 38 so closely. For the measure you use will be measured back to you. I mean, do you hear what he's saying there? When David pronounced judgment against that rich man, David was pronouncing judgment against who? David. 
When I'm standing around in a circle, uh, circle criticizing another person, I'm not condemning them, I'm condemning me. James says in James 4.12, listen to this, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Just envision that person for a moment that you struggle with. Get their face in your mind, even if that face is ugly to you at this time. And I want you to envision that you're standing in the throne room of heaven. God in his infinite splendor and glory is wearing majestic judge's robes and he has a gavel in his hand and and God is behind the judge's bench. And that person that you're thinking about is standing there before God and they're reading off the list of offenses that this person has committed to people over the course of their life and as the list is being read, your mind begins to think, finally. Finally, they're going to get what's coming to them. Finally, all the things that they've done is going to be recognized. Finally. So God takes in all of the information. Here's all of the arguments back and forth and pronounces his judgment. Not guilty because of Jesus. And you get mad. You walk past the angelic bailiff. You grab the gavel out of God's hand. You try to strip off his robes. You start hitting the table and you say, guilty. You don't know what they've done. You don't know what they've done to me. Guilty. Can you imagine doing that to God? Removing his robes? Taking the gavel from his hands and yet That is precisely what we do, the Bible says, when we judge others, when we condemn them, when we assign motives to them, when we blame them, when we refuse to forgive. We are essentially putting on his robes and trying to do his job for him. And we have no business putting on God's robes. Why? Well, because... As it turns out, there was actually a kernel of truth on Jerry Springer and Maury Povich. We don't know where they've been. We don't know their heart. We've never walked a mile in their shoes. Listen to these words from this author. Let this sink into your heart this morning. When God evaluates that person, he takes into account everything about that person, their biology, sinful tendencies, weaknesses, family history, current struggles, and a thousand other factors. God's judgment is perfectly just. My judgment is terribly skewed. Without omniscience, all my judgments are going to be off kilter. So Jesus is saying this morning in Luke 6, take the robes off and listen to my gospel truth, my remedy for judgy hearts. And what is his remedy? Well, look at those verses again, verses 37 and 38, right? He says, judge not, contemn not, but instead what? Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. The gospel remedies for judgy hearts is mercy and generosity. 
When you look back at verse 36, Jesus says, if you want to be like your heavenly Father, you need to be merciful. You need to be generous. So what does it look like to be merciful? Well, the merciful are forgiving. Forgiveness in the Greek means to release someone. Now, it's not an excuse. We've already talked about this, haven't we? It's not a denial. It's an act of the will. George MacDonald said a striking thing when he said, it may be infinitely worse to refuse to forgive than to murder. Now you're thinking, ah, that might be overstating it a little bit, huh? But listen to his words. It may be infinitely worse to refuse to forgive than to murder because the latter may be an impulse in the heart of the moment, whereas the former is a cold and deliberate choice of the heart. A choice that I have to keep making day after day. But mercy refuses to make that choice. Mercy accepts what someone has done. Mercy releases them from what they have done. Here's another one. The merciful are open to people with messy backgrounds. Okay, that might not be an immediate implication in this passage, but Luke is showing us this as we're making our way through this gospel, isn't he? Think about Jesus' story so far. Uh, What does Jesus do with the messy people in this story? Does he feel superior to them? Uh, Does he construct judgmental barriers that prevent these people from coming to him? No, that's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus says, don't follow that example. Verse 39, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? These Pharisees, they are hopeless with people. Jesus condemns them in Matthew 23, 23. He says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are what? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides. Straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Remember Rosaria Butterfield? I shared her story with you several weeks back. But she said these words that I think are so powerful. We never know the treacherous path that others take to arrive in the pew that we share Lord's Day after Lord's Day. So true. So true. I I saw this when I worked in youth ministry. It's kind of crazy to think about it, but I'm five years past that now. (laughs) So I guess that's not that long ago, but it feels long ago to me. But as I was working in youth ministry, there used to be some students that would come in and their attitudes would just be terrible. Uh, They seemed disengaged, disinterested. They would come into the group. They didn't want anything to do with God. They didn't want anything to do with the people that were there. And, And here was their worst offense of all. They ignored my wonderful messages. And so I would sometimes quietly in my head, in my heart think, why are you even coming here in the first place if that's going to be your attitude? 
very glad I never said that out loud. But God humbled me. There was um, a girl who would come in and she had a very, very strong guard up from the, from the start. And week after week, she would come and put on this big front of complaining and why do I have to be here and I don't want to be here. But over time, God starts softening her heart to the point that she and I are able to have a very intentional, deep conversation and she shares with me her history of abuse. And I went home that night after hearing this story and thinking to myself, I finally see her the way you see her, Jesus. She's not an obstruction. She's not a bad attitude. She is a miracle. A miracle who has gone through so much and has made her way into this room. And a miracle, the greatest miracle of all, is that she's finally sitting down and hearing about you and moving towards you. Friends, that's why the church must create wide on-ramps for people to have an encounter with Jesus. We must be merciful and forgiving, understanding and caring, inviting and welcoming, because people are gonna walk through these doors. We are living in 2020. They're gonna walk through these doors with incredibly complex, misguided, and confused moral backgrounds. And we cannot be the church that says to these people, get your act together before we say, this is Jesus. And that's why I'm so thankful for Josh and Allie and for what they're doing, because they're going into the community, creating those inroads. And as we as a church grow in this value of generosity, I'm praying that there will be more partnerships like this so that we can see people come to Christ. And isn't it interesting that Jesus treats generosity as a remedy for the judgmental heart? You see that in the text? He says, forgive and what? Give. Because generous people are charitable people. How can you be charitable? You can be charitable in your financial dealings, can't you? And in fact, I would say that's a big component of generosity is actual financial generosity. Where your treasure is, Jesus says there, your heart is also. But I can also be charitable in the way that I use my time and I can be charitable in the way I think about other people. What if instead of choosing to believe the worst in others, you chose to believe the best in others until the facts prove otherwise? Can you imagine how much stress and, and just messed up emotions that would remove out of our world if we lived a life like that? And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here in verses 41 and 42. Let's look at that together. He says in this parable, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now that word hypocrite that Jesus uses, you've probably seen him use that a couple of times if you've read the Gospels. In the ancient Greek culture, the 
the idea of hypocrite was an actor on a stage. So it's a pretense. It's a person that is trying to deceive, trying to be something that they're not. But when Jesus uses this term in the Gospels, he uses it a little differently. The Pharisees have been misinformed or they have a distorted understanding of God's law. And so that causes them to do wrong things, wrong applications with the law of God. So it's not a, a, an intentional deception, it's a form of self-deception. That's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is convinced that they're right and they're blind to see, which we saw there in verse 39. So how do I avoid becoming a hypocrite? Should I just keep all my thoughts to myself? Should I try to live without assigning any moral values to anything at any point in time? Just basically walk around with my brain in my hands? Well, I, I think, as we're already seeing, that's not how we should live. Because that would be living as if moral relativism is true. And as I shared, moral relativism is an absurd position. It's not biblical. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, Speak the truth in love. He even goes so far as to say in Colossians 3.16, warn one another. So what is Jesus getting at here? Jesus is advocating a life of intense self-examination before we engage in others' examination. That's what he's saying, isn't it? He's not saying don't ever remove a speck from someone's eyes. Why? Because... That's an incredibly loving thing to do for a person, isn't it? I thank God for brothers and sisters in Christ who have moved specks from my eye and much larger objects from my eye. I've needed that. So how can I be merciful in the application of this? How do I do this? How do I remove specks? Well, I think it consists of asking myself a battery of questions before I ever go and approach another person. Think of this. What if we asked, how can I identify with this person? How has my sin hurt my relationship with God, with others, even with myself? And that is setting me up for the attitude of empathy instead of superiority. That's really important, isn't it? Do I have all the facts? Am I just operating in the land of assumptions or do I have legitimate facts about this? Am I the right person to remove the speck? I think that's a great question to be asking. What if this person has a relationship with someone else that they trust and they know deeply and that's the right person to remove the speck? Why am I confronting them? So here we're talking about internal motivation. Am I doing this because I love them or because I'm going to take joy in watching that, this get back at them? Do I feel superior again? Another one. Have you asked them to explain the struggle before you prescribe the solution? Isn't that important? To walk up to someone to say, I'm noticing something, can you tell me about this? and then get into a solution? One more question. Are you willing to walk with them as they seek to grow beyond this struggle? Or are you like that doctor that's just pumping out patients, you're sick, next? 
You can, can you imagine with me how different Christian community would be and family relationships would be if we applied this passage? I mean, what person, when someone comes up to them, is going to be super closed off to cr- criticism in general if they know that that person loves them, cares about them, doesn't feel superior to them, and they have one desire, and that one desire is to walk with them in that situation? I've got to tell you, I have been incredibly closed off to sin in my life. And because God brought a Nathaniel around, it opened up my heart and I needed that. I love what Jesus says in verse 40 as we close. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Now, isn't that what discipleship is? Discipleship is to be like Jesus. And when you think about the person of Jesus, do you think of someone that's condemning and harsh and judgmental in their attitude? Or do you think of someone who is compassionate, merciful, generous, and forgiving? I think of the latter. And I think the the Holy Spirit is saying something incredibly important to us in this passage. The Spirit is saying something along these lines. If if you're thinking about how you want to spend your life from this moment forward until however many days that God has you, so from my case, 35 years until whenever the Lord calls me home, how do you want to be known by people? What do you want to be remembered for? Do you want to be remembered as someone who is caring and merciful and forgiving and charitable in in the way that you approach them? I, I think, as I think about this passage, I say to myself, absolutely. That's what I want. I I think about what would happen if Christianity and and Christians adopt this radical value that Jesus is talking about. I mean, how many lawsuits would be off the dockets? How many relationships would be repaired? How many marriages would be stronger? How many children and parents would be start talking with one another again. How many employees and employers would learn how to work together better? And think about how outward the church would become. Instead of dealing with internal strife and struggles, we would be thinking about how God could use us within our community to do his works of mercy and blessing in the lives of others. Now, I know that we're not going to get everything Jesus said right. But we've got to get this right. We've got to get this right. Can I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment?